That is a power in love that our world has not discovered yet. Jesus discovered it centuries ago. Mahatma Gandhi of India discovered it a few years ago, but most men and most women never discover it. This is the Living Prophets Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Maxmeister. This week, I'm taking a closer look at Martin Luther King. He was an amazing preacher, but how much do we really hear from his week-after-week sermons at his church? Here's what he had to say about how and why we should love our enemies. I think I mentioned before that some time ago my brother and I were driving and some, for some reason, the drivers were very discourteous that night. They didn't dim their lights, hardly any driver that passed by dimmed his lights. And I remember very vividly, my brother A.D. looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on in all of that power. And I looked at him right quick and said, oh, no. Don't do that. There'll be too much light on this highway. It will end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody must have sense enough to dim the lights. That is the trouble, isn't it? And as all of the civilizations of the world move up the highway of history, so many civilizations have looked at other civilizations that refuse to dim the lights. And they decided to refuse to dim theirs. And Tornbitt tells that out of the 22 civilizations that have risen up, all but about seven have found themselves in the junk heap of destruction. It is because civilizations fail to have sense enough to dim the lights. And if somebody doesn't have sense enough to turn on the dim and beautiful and powerful lights of love in this world, the whole of our civilization will be plunged into the abyss of destruction and we will all end up destroyed because nobody had any sense on the highway of history. Somewhere, somebody must have some sense. Men must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness, and it is all a descending spiral ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. And you do that by love. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel as recorded by St. Matthew, We read these very arresting words. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you, that ye may be the children of your Father, 
which is in heaven. Certainly these are great words, words lifted to cosmic proportions. And over the centuries, many persons have argued that this is an extremely difficult command. Many would go so far as to say that it just isn't possible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. And so the arguments abound. But far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dream, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. It is love that will save our world and our civilization.
Now first, let us deal with this question, which is the practical question. How do you go about loving your enemies? I think the first thing is this, that you love your enemies by beginning with a look itself. So that some people aren't going to like you. They are, they're going to dislike you not because of something that you've done to them, but because of various jealous reactions and other reactions that are so prevalent in human nature. But after looking at, it, at these things and admitting these things, we must face the fact that an individual might dislike us because of something that we've done deep down in the past, some personality attribute that we possess, something that we've done deep down in the past and we've forgotten about it, but it was that something that aroused the hate response within the individual. That is why I say begin with yourself. So we begin to love our enemies and love those persons that hate us, whether in collective life or individual life, by looking at ourselves. A second thing that an individual must do in seeking to love his enemy is to discover the element of good in his enemy. And every time you begin to hate that person and think of hating that person, realize that there is some good there and look at those good points, which will overbalance the bad points. And this simply means this, that within the best of us there is some evil, and within the worst of us there is some good. When we come to see this, we take a different attitude toward individuals. The person who hates you most has some good in him. Even the nation that hates you most has some good in it. Even the race that hates you most has some good in it. And when you come to the point that you look in the face of every man and see deep down within him what religion calls the image of God, you begin to love him in spite of. No matter what he does, you see God's image there. And that is an element of goodness that he can never slough off. Discover the element of good in your enemy. And as you seek to hate him, find the center of goodness and place your attention there and you will take a new attitude. Another way that you love your enemy is this. When the opportunity presents itself, for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time that you must not do. There will come a time, in many instances, when the person who hates you most, the person who has misused you most, the person who has gossiped about you most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of a recommendation for a job. It might be in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That's the time you must do it. That is the meaning of love. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something.
that we talk about. It is not merely an emotional something. Love is creative, understanding, goodwill for all men. It is a refusal to defeat any individual. When you rise to the level of love of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system you love, but you seek to defeat the system. Well, you see, the Greek language has three words for love, interestingly enough. It talks about love as eros. That's one word for love. Eros is a sort of uh, aesthetic love. Plato talks about it a great deal in his dialogues, a sort of yearning of the soul for the realm of the gods. It has come to us to be a sort of romantic love. Though it's a beautiful love, everybody has experienced eros and all of its beauty when you find some individual that is attractive to you and that you pour out all of your life and your love on that individual. That is eros, you see, and it's a powerful, beautiful love that is given to us through all of the beauty of literature we read about. Then the Greek language talks about philia, and that's another type of love that's also beautiful. It is a sort of intimate affection between personal friends. It's a sort of reciprocal love. On this level, you like a person because that person likes you. You love on this level because you are loved. You love on this level because there's something about the person you love that is likable to you. This, too, is a beautiful love. You can communicate with the person. You have certain things in common. You like to do things together. This is philia. The Greek language comes out with another word for love. It is the word agape. And agape is more than eros. Agape is more than philia. Agape is something of the understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is a love that seeks nothing in return. It is an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of men. And when you rise to love on this level, you begin to love men not because they are likable, but because God loves them. You look at every man and you love him because you know God loves him, and he might be the worst person you've ever seen. And this is what Jesus means, I think, in this very passage when he says, love your enemy, and it's significant that he does not say, like your enemy. Like is a sentimental something, an affectionate something. There are a lot of people that I find it difficult to like. I don't like some of the things they're doing. I don't like them. But Jesus said, love them. And love is greater than like. Love is understanding, redemptive, goodwill for all men, so that you love everybody. Because God loves them. You refuse to do anything that will defeat an individual. Because you have a copy in your soul. Here you come to the point that you love the individual who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. This is what Jesus means when he says love your enemy. This is the way to do it. And the opportunity presents itself to you to defeat your enemy. You must not do it. Now for the few moments left, let us move from the practical how to the theoretical why. It's not only necessary to know how to go about loving the enemies, but also to go down into the question of why 
we should love our enemies. I think the first reason that we should love our enemies, and I think this was at the very center of Jesus' thinking, is this, that hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If I hit you and you hit me and I hit you back and you hit me back and go on, you see, that goes on ad infinitum. It just never ends. Somewhere somebody must have a little sense, and that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil. And that is the tragedy of hate, that it doesn't cut it off. It only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong, powerful element of love. But it is even more tragic it is even more ruinous and injurious to the individual who hates. That is nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. He comes to the point that he becomes a pathological case. For the person who hates the good becomes bad and the bad becomes good. For the person who hates the true becomes false and the false becomes true. That's what hate does. You can't see right. The center of objectivity is lost. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. The world's greatest psychologist who walked around the hills of Galilee told us to love. He looked at men and said, love your enemies. Don't hate anybody. Because when you start hating anybody, it destroys the very center of your creative response to life and the universe. So love everybody. Hate at any point is a cancer that gnaws away the very vital center of your life and your existence. It is like eroding acid that eats away the best and the objective center of your life. Now that is the final reason I think that Jesus says love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And that is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they are mistreating you. Here's a person who is a neighbor, and this person is doing something wrong to you, and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them, and they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they are mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. 
And this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up. And it's creative. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. That is a power in love that our world has not discovered yet. Jesus discovered it centuries ago. Mahatma Gandhi of India discovered it a few years ago, but most men and most women never discover it. For they believe in hitting for hitting. They believe in an eye for an eye and a two for two. They believe in hating for hating. But Jesus comes to us and says, this isn't the way. Though this morning, as I think of the fact that our world is in transition now, our whole world is facing a revolution. Our nation is facing a revolution. Our nation. One of the things that concerns me most is that in the midst of the revolution of the world, in the midst of the revolution of this nation, that we will discover the meaning of Jesus' words. History, unfortunately, leaves some people oppressed and some people oppressors. And there are three ways that individuals who are oppressed can deal with their oppression. One of them is to rise up against their oppressors with physical violence and corroding hatred. Oh, this isn't the way. For the danger and the weakness of this method is its futility. Violence creates many more social problems than it solves. God said in so many instances that as a Negro, in particular, and colored peoples all over the world struggle for freedom. If they succumb to the temptation of using violence in that struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. And our chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. Violence isn't the way. Another way is to acquiesce and to, to give in, to resign yourself to the oppression. Some people do that. They discover the difficulties of the wilderness moving into the promised land. And they would rather go back to the flesh pots of Egypt because it's difficult to get into the promised land. And so they resign themselves to the fate of oppression. They somehow acquiesce to this thing. That too isn't the way because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. That is another way. That is through organized mass nonviolent resistance based on the principle of love. It seems to me that this is the only way as our eyes look to the future. As we look out across the years and across the generations, let us develop and move right here. We must discover the power of love the power, the redemptive power of love. And when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. We will be able to make men better. Love is the only way. Jesus discovered that. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent be transformed and then we will be in God's kingdom we will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies to bless those persons that cursed us to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us 
we even pray for those persons who despitefully used us.